0: Hi, I'm Marlon Walker and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland and if I sound a little bit different it is because I am recording on my phone instead of at my computer. Um, I am this week and next week uh, helping out my parents by taking care of uh, Clover the dog while my mom is on vacation so I'm spending a little less time during the day over at uh, my apartment and more time over at their house, which is nice. It's nice to hang out with uh, Clover, but um, it also means that I don't have uh, quite as much time or rather I, because it's it's less about the total time and more about the kind of uh, shake up to the schedule that makes it uh, more difficult for me being um, kind of bad at, adjusting plans on the fly um to record sort of the way I would normally record, um, and therefore I am uh doing this instead. So um anyway, that's just to say if I sound a little different, that's all it is. Um but yeah, I wanted to do an episode talking um basically about combat in RPGs and a, a couple of ideas that I had. Sort of around combat in RPGs, um, based on a couple of different um, pieces of media that I have uh, been uh, that I that I uh, in in this case a movie and a video game. the The movie is uh, the Last Duel, which is the recent uh, Ridley Scott movie starring. Matt Damon, and Adam Driver, and Jodie Comer, um, and I watched that a couple of nights ago. And then the the other piece is the video game uh, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice by From Software, um, and then sort of a couple of kind of related things to all of those that are kind of in the mix, I guess you might say. Um, but those are sort of the two big core pieces. Um, so I think this episode is going to be sort of in two... Have basically, um, not necessarily of equal kind of total time, but sort of to, to talk about the kind of two different pieces of media, essentially, and kind of some ideas that I've had in response to them about sort of RPG combat and, and things to do with RPG combat that I think capture things that I think are really cool in both of those pieces of media. So anyway, that's sort of what today's episode is going to be about, and uh, yeah, let's get into it. So let's start with The Last Duel. Um, so if any for those of you who do not know, The Last Duel is a, a recent film. It is based on a, a history book. That, it's one of those classic things that there's kind of the, the real history, but the the specific film is um, adapted from a specific history book, like a lot of um, sort of historical movies. There's kind of a, a specific history book that the the adaptation is technically a, a adaptation based on purchasing the rights to adaptation for that book, rather than a sort of general sort of you know accumulation of new historical. Uh, understanding for the film there are some like that. Um, I think I remember um, Sergei Eisenstein's um, Alexander Nevsky is actually based on kind of his own historical <laughs> research in some ways rather than on like a specific kind of history book um, and and particularly I seem to remember part of the point is that his his use of uh, Kind of folk tales and and sort of folk songs and these sort of popular details of the history of Alexander Nevsky as it appears to sort of the Russian people um, as opposed to the kind of specific sort of historical record of the the kind of elites of the medieval world that would have written down the historical record anyway um, in a I think there's probably like a, a Novgorod chronicle or something like that that has some specific historical records of Alexander Nevsky. Um anyway. Um so the the story of the last duel involves the, the titular duel is a duel to the death uh, in judicial combat um over a a, a rape uh, that a um Jean Le Carouge um, Sir Jean LeCarouge is a knight, um, and uh, Jacques Legris is a squire. Um, they both start out as squires, but then uh, Jean is knighted later, um, and uh, Jean Le Carrouge, um while he is away fighting in Scotland, um, comes home and his wife tells him that uh, she has been raped by Jacques Legris. Um, the two men used to be sort of friends and so ha- sort of had some level of falling out, and then the ideas sort of tried to make up with each other, and then this happens. And um, part of the difficulty is that um, Jean Le Carouge and Jacques Legree are both um, vassals of the same lord, and so, uh, and, and Jacques is, is much higher esteemed in the Lord's opinion, and that therefore Jean recognizes that he's not likely to get any particular um, justice from going to his direct feudal Lord, and so he ends up escalating to the King and basically um, invoking a right to um, trial by combat to the death um and then the, there's the duel between these two men um, the the film is interesting it's sort of divided into uh, uh several parts I, I say sort of it, it is divided into several parts there's kind of three kind of main parts of of story each of which tells the the sort of story of the of events that lead up to the duel from the perspective of one of the three main characters um so the first section is jean LeCrouge's version of what happened um and then the second is jacques legree's version of what happened and then the third is um, marguerite uh jean's wife um telling her story of what happened um and there's some interesting things. There, are, there are a number of sequences where it's the, you know, clearly the same events being told in a slightly different way, um, that is, uh, you know, designed to to sort of get at this idea of the sort of different versions of the story according to these different characters, um, you know, different sort of bits and pieces that are told in slightly different ways, slightly, slightly different details, even if sort of some of the kind of main elements of the the event are the same, that there are sort of, you know, different bits and pieces. Um, and then there's a sort of prologue that kind of sets up the, the duel, and then uh sort of an epilogue, almost, that is the duel itself, if that makes sense, kind of after all of the stories have been told, it sort of talks about kind of what happens, although it's also sort of a part of Marguerite's story, the The duel itself. Um, it's kind of an interesting way that it sort of, and I, I think that's by design that there's a sense of the way in which Marguerite's story we are meant to understand is if not kind of the absolute truth is at the very least the most truthful and that therefore once we kind of, we sort of move directly from Marguerite's story into kind of verifiable history because of that, because there's a, a greater connection between Marguerite's story and verifiable history, right? Um, so, um, but I thought the movie was quite good. It is uh, pretty brutal at times. Um, there's a couple of, you know, battle scenes and there's the duel itself, which is is pretty rough. Um, but in particular, there's um, the, the two... Versions on screen of uh, Jacques Legree um, and his uh, action, what he describes as a uh, love affair and what Marguerite describes as a rape with um, between the two of them. Uh, the even even Jacques Legree's version is in my opinion um, pretty clearly not at least, at least, not completely consensual. It's you know, you can make the case that she is, you know, perhaps less adamant against him. Um, in that version, I think is fair, but that, and I think part of the point that is is sort of being got at by the film is the way in which, um, you know, the the sort of the problem is not just this one bad person. It's the sort of whole culture and, and the way that there are so many of these kind of cultural elements that are real issues that um, you know that that essentially part of the problem is not just that Jacques Legris is a bad dude who rapes Marguerite, but that he's a bad dude and he's in a culture that doesn't necessarily see something wrong with his version of the story. Um, and that we are sort of meant to understand. And there, there are a number of places where that gets highlighted. You know, there's a discussion of the way in which, um, you know, one of the, the, the jurists who is a, a churchman actually is talking about how um, rape is a, a crime between two men. It's a crime of one man against the uh guardian of a woman the male guardian of a woman not against the woman herself right that the the crime is not the sexual violence it is the destruction of value essentially that comes with the sexual violence and that you know we are i think pretty clearly meant to understand just how Fucked up, that is. Um, And then there's a whole sequence, especially near the end, and I thought it was actually really clever the way that um, this is done, that in the sort of prologue sequence that establishes the duel, we see um, the sort of three arming scenes, both of the men armoring up in armor and Marguerite um, being dressed in the the sort of uh, relatively... uh, the The particulars of her um what she's wearing essentially, and that there's you know meant to be a connection there of the men armoring for battle and the Marguerite the woman is going through something similar even if it is not steel armor that she's putting on um, but that one of the kind of interesting things is we see mostly kind of close ups of marguerite looking at the duel and it's hard to tell exactly where she's watching from um and then when we get to the end at the main duel we can see that she is basically standing on top of a pyre and in in her sequence the the jurists talk about you know if your husband is killed in combat with Jacques Legree, that means that you lied and therefore we're going to burn you alive for lying to the court um and we're going to do it right away. Right. And basically the, what the, the, the judge who is telling her that is basically saying, look, you can, you know, withdraw your accusation right now and it'll be sort of no harm, no foul. We'll just forget this ever happened and you won't be potentially burned alive. Um, And that she has to, you know, decide whether or not to, to stand on her um, belief, her accusation or to, um you know basically give up her search for justice and and the point of course there being the the way in which the culture is really committed to um coercion against uh women who bring up accusations of rape against men especially powerful men um that is you know also incredibly fucked up but that that once we get to the kind of main sequence of the duel itself, we can see that she's standing on basically a platform that is essentially a pyre and there's like, you know, burning braziers next to her where it's like, okay, so she's, you know, chained to the pyre and if her husband gets killed, they're going to do it right now. Um, Which was, uh you know, a, a well-crafted kind of startling um reveal, essentially, that is like a lot of really good reveals, not entirely kind of unexpected, but is, um, you know, there's sort of a a way in which we kind of get the last bit of of detail that lets us kind of fully understand what we've been seeing all along um, that I thought was well done. Um, Anyway, so I thought it was a good movie. Worth watching, um, in my opinion, although not for the faint of heart, I guess I would say that there's some, you know, pretty brutal stuff in the film um, in a number of places. Um, but specifically i sort of wanted to talk about the the duel itself um one of the things that i quite liked about the movie was the way that in my opinion there's a, a an emphasis on the realistic combat um, not just in the sense of kind of gritty combat like you might see in something like game of thrones but realistic as in conforming to the reality of what combat in those conditions would be like historically, um, you know, the comparison with Game of Thrones I think is obvious. I remember I saw, I haven't watched the whole series of Game of Thrones, but I have watched bits and pieces. Um, you know, the the duel between um, the Mountain, uh, Gregor Clegane, and Oberyn Martell I think is a great example of the Mountain. Like he's clearly right, he's uh, I don't remember the actor's name,, uh, but you know, huge guy, clearly big and strong, and he's got what is basically like a would be a great sword in anybody else's uh hands, but is sort of closer to a, a sort of bastard sword or a long sword in his hand, but he only uses his right hand on the sword, and his left hand is just empty when he strikes. Like, he will swing with his right hand on the sword and his left hand just clenched in a fist by his side, basically. And it's like, okay, so, like, I get that we're meant to understand that this guy is big and strong, but if you know anything, and even if you're just paying attention to the combat, right, you should realize that it looks fucking stupid, right? Like, why not put both hands on the sword hilt and have essentially two arms worth of of strength and control, and especially, I think one of the the big points is the way in which when you have two points of grip on the the hilt of a sword, you can use your uh, higher hand, traditionally your right hand, if you're right-handed, for kind of control and as the fulcrum point and your left hand for power. And what it means is that you're not just getting more power from both hands but from sort of the mechanical advantage of essentially being able to twist the sword in your hands as you strike so that it's it's sort of twisting around the the point of your right hand grip using the left hand grip as the the lever essentially to to speed the blade um anyway the point being that it looks completely ridiculous if you're you know paying attention to the the action <laughs> Basically, in that um, you know, the the last duel is not like that. It is meant to capture a, a much more realistic sense of what combat is like in those conditions, and, and in particular, the way in which you know, if you have a a long sword and are fighting against somebody in um, plate armor, you know, full harness of the period, you can you know whack at them all day, and the person who dies in combat is going to die because of heat stroke and a heart attack, not because you've actually chopped through the armor, right? There are ways to get through plate armor, but it's not by, you know, the sort of, you know, baseball batting stance style fighting that we see in a lot of, um, medieval films. Um, and, and the movie, I think, has a good kind of movement in that that um the the duel takes place in a couple of stages. Um and uh I was when watching reminded very much of um the way that Codex Martialis structures melee combat. Um in Codex Martialis there are sort of three melee ranges for lack of a better term and they all of them the idea is are positions where you can, you know, hit somebody with a weapon in a, a hand weapon in kind of melee range but they are different degrees of closeness right that instead of just the you know sort of D style you know having five foot squares and you know you're next to somebody and that's melee that there's more kind of you know okay so you're next to them but it depends on kind of how close you actually are to them in codex martialis the three um reach designations are onset and melee and grapple. Um, Onset is basically at the maximum reach of the, the weaponry that is involved. So it's like if you've got a spear that you're at the kind of full reach of the spear. Melee is at sort of optimum range for hand weapons essentially. So it's more like, you know, you don't have to lunge to hit him with your sword. You can do kind of you know more of the sort of you know slashing with the edge type thing. And then grapple is you know up in close and wrestling. And a lot of the weapons that are useful at longer reaches, of course, are too large to use as effectively in grapple range unless you do some kind of um, you know tricks with them. You know, striking with the pommel of the sword instead of with the blade. Because the pommel is heavy, and so it's a good sort of bludgeon, but it's not necessarily as useful um, at the sort of longer reach because you can't actually hit them with the the pommel. Um, anyway, so I uh, I quite enjoyed that element. Um, the The fight starts, the the duel in the last duel starts on horseback with lances, and they you know charge at each other. Um, And they break uh, two or three lances each um, until, I don't remember who it is, that gets knocked down. Um, And then there's fighting on the ground. um, And then eventually um, it turns into the sort of grapple range. And I think there's a, a way in which the movie does a good job of showing that, you know, there's a fair bit of fighting that occurs at kind of longer reach but that the real kind of killing mostly happens very very up close right that a lot of times what you're sort of doing in the kind of longer reaches when you're fighting somebody who is in this you know very very protective armor is that you're not really trying to to kill them so much as to set up for a killing blow um which i think is a really interesting thing um there's a fair bit of, you know, smacking each other around and trying to, you know, not even necessarily trying to do kind of debilitating damage even, but just to sort of set up for a uh, a better kind of killing blow um, and that the, the actual killing happens basically very, very up close in kind of grapple range with a dagger rather than at this sort of, you know, extended reach with the lances or with the swords not that you couldn't kill somebody with a lance obviously you could but that you know more likely what you do is that even in a sort of successful lance charge what happens is that you just knock them off their horse without necessarily um killing them and that when they're sort of on the ground stunned they're a relatively easy target to to come over to and, you know, finish off with your dagger that can actually punch through the armor or find one of the, the sort of joins in the armor and, um, you know, hit the, the, the fleshy parts underneath the solid armor. Um, anyway, so I quite enjoyed that element of, of the film and the sort of progress of the duel, um, and I thought about how you might do that in RPGs Um, obviously in something like Codex Martialis you already have a structure that sort of is built around that. Um, Codex Martialis in particular I think has some kind of cool elements that factor into that especially the um, effectiveness of armor means that you can't really just kind of wail through armor. Um, Armor is very very effective in Codex Martialis as it was sort of historically if you don't behave in a way that is designed to sort of deal with the armor if that makes sense that there are things you can do to get around the armor so in codex martialis you can take an attack penalty to basically try to hit somewhere that is not as effectively or not armored at all um and thereby you know potentially uh, you know, maybe they've got like a, a chainmail vest on and, you know, chainmail is pretty hard to get through even with a weapon that is designed to punch through chainmail. Um, but if their arms are uncovered, you can just strike at their arms, right? Um, and Codex Martialis handles this in a way that I think is uh, really well done. It's it's abstract enough to be very, very quick without um, kind of getting into all of the sort of gritty pieces um, and it does some, some interesting stuff there. Uh, the, the various Riddle of Steel games also have some of this that you can target specific locations on the enemy to uh, strike at. Um, and, and both of them have other kind of interesting things you can do to sort of set up the killing blow. Um, in particular, in the Riddle of Steel games, often there are various combat maneuvers that characters can take um that do not necessarily result in kind of, you know, uh, killing damage, but that make it more difficult for the enemy to effectively, uh, you know, deal with your your next strike sort of thing. So like in um, the riddle of Steel games, one of the actions is a beat. And a beat is basically a, a fencing term for, striking at the weapon instead of at the person and the idea is to knock the weapon out of the way so that it's more difficult to use the weapon to defend yourself um fairly straightforward concept um you know that if if you have somebody who has a long sword in front of them right part of the difficulty of hitting them is not just hitting them with your sword but hitting them with your sword in a way that they don't hit you with their sword when you get close enough to them because the the sort of general um, rule of thumb being that if you're close enough to hit somebody with your sword they're close enough to hit you with their sword which is part of the the danger of, of melee combat. Um, so there's some cool stuff there. I was also thinking about how you could do something like that, even sort of simpler with uh, something like fate-based, that you could pretty easily have um, the 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 reaches as um, aspects, right? That you could just have the different kind of reach that the, the things happen at as aspects, and then use your you know, create an aspect actions as the sort of, you know, set up for a deadly blow type thing. um, And that that would probably work pretty well. Um, So I'd be interested in trying that out. I'm not entirely sure. I think it would, what I would like to do is create some level of kind of, not necessarily codification in the sense of like, here's the rules that define this, but sort of codification in the sense of having, like, pre-written examples, almost, if that makes sense. I feel like that's one of the things that um, I actually think is one of the sort of core weaknesses of Fate is that Fate has such a, a wonderful kind of toolkit element, but that if you present it to players who do not not as familiar with some of the assumptions of that game, that they are likely to be like, okay, well, but what do I actually do with these things, um, with these kind of mechanisms in in play? Um, And that can be a little more difficult to explain, although I do think that's part of why um, Evil Hat has all those Fate Worlds um, uh, PDFs and, and books, that those are designed essentially to respond to that, to say, here's kind of worked examples of how to do all of these things, right? How to, you know, what your aspects can look like, what your stunts can look like, what you can kind of do with all of the sort of toolkit mechanisms that we've built in order to create a fun game. Um, And I think doing sort of something like that for myself, almost, for a sort of kind of gritty, realistic, uh, you know, medieval combat um, version of, of fate, either probably either condensed or maybe even accelerated um, would be kind of an interesting thing to, to do as a project to kind of work through some of those ideas um, but, yeah I think you could do I mean, in some ways you could do it with a number of other systems I think there are some systems that wouldn't necessarily work as well a lot of, I mean, I think that kind of vanilla D&D in some ways doesn't work nearly as well right because it's most of it is hit point damage there's not a lot of sort of setup although you could probably build i mean in something like 5e you could have some i've been thinking for some time about ways to create a sort of like almost like a create an advantage action in um fate but the idea is to create advantage in the sense of the way D&D uses D&D 5e uses advantage where the the point is basically an action you can take that will give you advantage on an attack um so that you can be like okay so you know I'm going to essentially not have hit point damage being done on this round but next round I will have better odds of hitting which would be useful for you know targets that are particularly difficult to hit that might be kind of an interesting thing. I don't know exactly how you would kind of come up with all of that, but I think you could do something interesting with that, certainly. Um, So yeah, that's sort of some ideas. Um, I was also thinking a little bit, I've been been looking just a little bit at Cortex recently, and I wonder if you could do something interesting there um, with some of the like special because what they do is they use kind of die sizes for different kind of factors that are relevant to your success basically um and so i wonder if you could create kind of an interesting system that involves kind of like you know the the sort of escalating die sizes to represent kind of a little bit like in in boxing you know having them on the ropes as they say right where um, in, in boxing, the reference to on the ropes is that there are you know, ropes that form the sides of the, the square that is the boxing ring, right? It's, it's, a, it's a square, but it's called a ring. You know what I mean. Um, and so there are posts at the corners and ropes along the sides. And so in the corner, um, backed into the corner or on the ropes basically refers to when one fighter is dominant enough that they are sort of controlling the positioning of the fight And if they can kind of control the positioning, they can push their opponent into a position where their opponent doesn't have as much capacity to um, avoid the fight. And therefore, you know, especially in the corner, backed into the corner is a, a bad place to be because you can get stuck there. And at that point, you don't have a good, you know, you don't have a lot of movement away from, the the opponent and so you know if the opponent backs you into the corner it's like okay well you gotta you know start trading and and the point being that if if you or if if a a dominant fighter is able to put their opponent into the corner then they can kind of control the flow of the fight Um, now there is some danger in the sense that you know obviously trading blows at any time is not Necessarily perfect for um, fighters, but if you look at you know really dominant fighting performances, often in boxing, you know putting the opponent on the ropes or in the corner is uh, an important part of that. Although sometimes it works a little different. There's um, Muhammad Ali, famously the the rope a dope technique as they call it, um, where he would himself be on the ropes essentially and basically fighting from the ropes, as they say. Um, and and most famously against uh, George Foreman, I think um, that he was able to kind of control the fight from a non dominant position and continue to do meaningful damage. Um, in particular, in that fight, I remember when watching it that one of the things that would happen is that George Foreman would you know throw a jab at um, Ollie's head, and Ollie would slip the punch and then like tag him twice before Foreman could, you know, even just get his fist all the way back into position. Um, And the the point being that, you know, it looks like a non-dominant position, and a lot of the people watching thought that Ali was in serious trouble because he was on the ropes and so didn't have as much room to maneuver, Um, but that, of course, he he won the fight because he was able to sort of control the fight even from that non-dominant position um and so there's probably some interesting stuff you could do there but i don't uh, i wonder how you could kind of bring bring that into play really effectively um seems like that would be kind of cool it also speaking of boxing um there's a game that i've talked about some on here by two-hour war games called friday night fights that i quite like that is a, a boxing game essentially it's uh it's, it's basically a dice rolling game it's not really an RPG in the sense that there are very few decisions to make there are a couple um, because you have a sort of meta currency that you can use to make decisions at times um, but for the most part it's a game that involves um, just a rolling dice and seeing what happens um, but one of the cool things I think in that game is that you have a, a boxing stat which is basically your character's kind of technical ability at boxing. And then you have some other stats, and often your dice pool for an action or things like that is based on the sum of your boxing stat and your kind of other relevant stat, um, quickness or ferocity or things like that. And then there will be traits that modify things from there. Um, but part of the idea that I think is really cool is that as a character, as a, a, a fighter Um, takes hits during the action, they will lose temporarily lose boxing dice, um, and they can regain them on the rests in between rounds, Um, but it sort of depends on there's a sort of flow back and forth. Um, And I think it's cool because it's something that we don't see in a lot of RPGs where your kind of ability to fight is reduced by getting hit during the fight um but i think there's a a fair bit of sort of realism to that um it is kind of it does get into the sort of death spiral element that uh, a lot of people obviously don't like um but i think there is something there that you could do of the way that you know the idea being that you know if you're getting you know tagged a lot and knocked around and you know in the way that you know even with a a solid helmet on uh, a fighter can get um you know, kind of get their bell rung, for lack of a better term, get get sort of stunned and, and groggy and worn out from the fight. And the, that's, uh, you know, a sort of way to set up for a more devastating um, conclusion, essentially, right? And I think that's sort of what I'm getting at is the idea of sort of the, the sort of preliminary, the sort of first set of phases of combat as set up for the kind of finale of a combat rather than having kind of the whole combat feel kind of like the same stuff the way that in DD i feel like sometimes you get into that sense of like okay so you know roll to hit roll damage and that's sort of all you do over the course of the entire combat and there's you know fictional things that are changing but there's not really that sense of like you know okay i'm spending kind of the first Half of the combat, sort of building up my resources and kind of trying to control the fight so that for the second half I can kind of go in for the kill, um, which is something that the, the sort of second thing I'm going to talk about is a lot about. Uh, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice does a lot of stuff with that sort of concept. So I think I'm going to talk about that next. All right, I am back um, actually several hours later. Um, I had some stuff to take care of and got sidetracked, and you know all of that sort of stuff. But um, I'm ready to record some more, so I'm back. Um, and I thought I would talk a little bit about um, Sekiro: Shadows Die Twice, which is a game from From Software, is the the name of the developer who are particularly famous for. The uh, Dark Souls series, and then a number of, of kind of other games that are um, have some similarity. Often, that's sort of how they're they're interpreted. Um, sort of Soulsborne series is what sometimes call it. People call it. Um, there was, I know there was one. I think there was a game that they made before Demon's Souls, but Demon's Souls was the first of their games that I heard of. And then there was the first Dark Souls, and there's Dark Souls 2 and 3, and then there's also Bloodborne and Sekiro, and now Elden Ring, which is the, the newest of their games, um, and that was out of order in terms of the release um, releases of those games, and, and Demon Souls also got a uh, remaster for the PS5 um, that apparently changed not a whole lot of mechanical stuff, but some mechanical stuff. Um, So anyway, um, and then, yeah, that's the the sort of set of games. Um, And there are a number of kind of elements that are uh, fairly consistent between a number of the games, although there tend to be kind of slight differences. Um, One of the big pieces being the sort of expectation of player, character, death, um, that often is not a hugely significant um, setback in a number of ways. I think that's sort of the way to to put it best. And it's different in, in different games. Um, but certainly in, in Dark Souls One, which I'm going to use as the sort of kind of measuring stick uh, as the kind of the basis for, for discussing the whole series in some ways when your character dies barring a couple of specific um, situational elements, what happens is you just respawn at the last uh, bonfire that you rested at, and bonfires are these kind of uh, special spots in the world where they're these little it's kind of like a sword and a stone thing with flames around it, and you uh, go up to the bonfire and activate it and you can sit and rest. When you rest at a bonfire, all of the Normal enemies, and there's a sort of lore thing about undead enemies versus non-undead enemies, Um, all of the the normal enemies the non-boss enemies will respawn and you'll be essentially kind of set back to neutral almost, that enemies will respawn and you'll um, recover all of your healing there's certain healing items that are consumed when they're used um but then most of the games have some sort of a healing item that recovers every time you rest at a bonfire or you respawn um so in dark souls one that's estus flasks well in all the dark souls games that's estus flasks um in sekiro it's the healing gourd um, and then some of the other, so Demon Souls doesn't work quite like that, and Bloodborne works a little bit differently. Um, but and then the Elden Ring, it's the the flasks of, of tears, the Crimson Tears is the the healing one. Um, but basically, the idea being, in most of the games, they're designed to be um, fairly fairly difficult, fairly punishing, um, but that there's not necessarily a huge loss in terms of you know loss on death which is uh, you know by design right the idea being that you know yes you may die a lot but you don't necessarily uh lose that much except for your time on death um and that sort of gets into some of the other elements so one of the the kind of core elements of the souls series in general has to do with uh fighting bosses kind of special enemies that do not respawn after you kill them and that um are they sort of gate sections of progress right so there'll be a you know in order to get to the next zone you have to go through the 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 boss that is essentially guarding the entrance to the next zone sort of thing and so you have to kind of work your way through the bosses and that's Generally, how a lot of the kind of progress in the games is measured is by um, what bosses that you've you've beaten so far, um, and then often the bosses. There's some kind of consistent elements between not all the bosses, but there's definitely some kind of classic bits and pieces that are are common to a lot of bosses. There are a, whole, a lot of bosses that are some sort of large being. Um, where you have to kind of, you know, try to dodge big, wide, you know, like sweeps with a, a sword or a halberd or something. And there's some, some kind of classic concepts, the, the stab their ankles concept, as it sometimes gets called, where the idea is that the, the boss is like a, a big monster and you have to kind of get up close next to him and stab at their ankles and just, you know, dodge at the right times to avoid their hits because their hits are really tough. Um, it's kind of a classic one, um, and there's some other elements that are are not necessarily totally unique to the Soul series, but sort of the combination of them is part of the um, uniqueness. And, and Sekiro moves away from some of those. Um, in particular, one of the things that the Dark Souls Dark Souls itself does. And the, the other Dark Souls games, many of them have elements of, is a lot of um, kind of indirect story and world explanation. Um, so, for instance, in Dark Souls itself, a lot of your a lot of the kind of information about the sort of larger world that the story is taking place in comes from item descriptions. So when you get an item there will be a description and often the description is not just kind of here's what this item is in the sense of like it's a sword it'll be like you know this is the particular sort of sword that is often used by the you know knights of this particular kingdom and so it's like okay so there's some you know information about uh, a kingdom and that there are knights there and they use this particular type of sword and things like that and there's a lot of the kind of Lore and story of Dark Souls is built through that kind of accumulation of sort of separate um, pieces that you know. Once you sort of fit them all together, you have kind of a, a better idea of the way that the the sort of the sort of story, especially kind of the the sort of prelude to. Your own character's adventures in the world—the kind of how did things get this way—element is a, a, a major part of a lot of these games. this sort of sense of you know the how did how did things end up like this, almost, um, which is a, another thing that I think a lot of people, certainly myself, I like a lot. There's a kind of almost an archaeological component to it that I think is really cool. Not in the sense of like digging up uh, artifacts, but in the sense of kind of reconstructing the nature of a a civilization, almost. Um, And then there's some other elements that are are kind of classic Souls elements. Um, Weird, kind of like esoteric, um, uh, for lack of a better term, secret elements, where part of the point is not, in my opinion, not that the player themselves discovers these secret elements but the sense of being a part of this kind of larger community because in most of the souls games there are ways to like leave messages in the world that other players can read and so you can you know once one part of the idea being that once one person finds you know a secret in the world right a, a hidden door or something like that 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 sort of becomes part of the sort of for lack of a better term kind of cultural knowledge of players of the game and there's some really wild stuff in some of the dark souls games there's one um i think it's in dark souls one the is dark souls one the painted world i think so um where you have to have a specific item in your inventory and then do a specific gesture in front of a painting you basically have to if i remember correctly you have to bow to a painting in order to get sucked into this painting that is a whole kind of separate sort of like mini section of the world um which is a kind of a, a classic dark Soulsy thing of having these kind of interesting sort of separate zones that are sort of weird to access and stuff like that um which i think is itself kind of a cool thing um, but the idea being that, you know, almost no player is going to figure that out on their own just from the very uh, limited clues that are in the world accessible to everybody, but that, you know, you you play the game and you, you know, encounter, uh, you know, player messages and you, you know, watch less Plays or whatever it is that you do that kind of, clues you, the player who is not necessarily able to come up with all of that yourself into these this kind of, you know, esoteric way of accessing this particular section of uh the game, and that, that sense of being a part of this kind of, you know, communal knowledge sharing is is a really central element of Dark Souls, that there's the the kind of interplay of um, communication and connection alongside the sort of solitude of the game that it's a a sort of a single player game it's not entirely single player in the sense that there is multiplayer stuff but certainly a lot of the game can be played pretty much totally single player um, and there's a real whole thing about the kind of you know solitude that's a, a big part of the sort of themes of the game and the sort of style of the game that there's a kind of idea of sort of anyway there's there's some pretty cool stuff that goes on there um anyway and i so i have not played all of the from software games um i don't own i had a playstation 2 when i was a kid but i haven't owned uh any consoles since i don't think i think i've just been a, a pc gamer ever since so i I have played Dark Souls 1, um, the Prepare to Die edition on PC, and Dark Souls 2, Scholar the First Sin, and Dark Souls 3, the whatever, the gold edition or whatever it is with all of the DLC, um, and Sekiro, but I've not played, and now I've, I've started Sekiro, but I've not played Demons, Souls, either original or remastered, or Bloodborne, um, or Elden Ring. Although all of them, I've you know seen footage from them and watched you know Let's Play stuff about them, so I know a little bit about them, but I haven't kind of played them myself. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the things that Sekiro does that are a little bit different than some of the kind of standard formula elements of the Souls games, I guess you might say. Um, and in particular, the, the big thing that I wanted to talk about is the, the posture and death blow system. So the way that Sekiro works, um, entities in the game have two different um, values that sort of cover, um, health, for lack of a better term, um, you have Vitality, which is your kind of standard health, but you also have Posture, and Posture is sort of like a, a stun meter, if that makes sense. As it fills up, um, there are certain factors that will cause Posture to you. Basically, when uh, your character blocks an attack against them, or an enemy blocks an attack against you, or a number of different conditions, the Posture Bar will start to fill up, and then, as time goes on, the posture bar will um, shrink over time. That you you recover posture over time, but obviously, if you're you know in the middle of the fight, you might be gaining posture a lot faster than you're recovering it based on the time. Um, and then the idea is there's some kind of cool stuff that happens when posture when the posture bar fills up. Um, so for your character, what happens is basically that. Um, when your posture bar is full, you cannot actually um, block, kind of automatically anymore. You can still deflect, which is a, a timed parry, essentially that you you sort of parry at the perfect moment. Um, at least in some, I think in some situation you can. I don't remember if you can always. I don't know. I haven't had my posture broken very much in the game so far, but I'm only you know two and a half hours in, um, maybe three. So, um, but there's some stuff you can do to kind of recover. You can sort of, you know, uh, dodge away to try to, you know, get some, some space to recover your posture back. Um, enemies, when their posture bar fills up, they will have a red dot appear on them. And that means that you can trigger a death blow on them, which a death blow is basically a special type of attack. That um allows you to instantly get rid of all of their remaining vitality. Now that isn't necessarily always an instant kill because certain enemies will have the equivalent of multiple vitality bars, require multiple death blows um, in order to take down. But for basic enemies, that's enough to be like you know, trigger the death blow, and there's a, a special animation, and the idea is that you're sort of you know, knocking your you know, you're in a fight with an enemy and you're, you know, striking and deflecting and parrying and all that sort of stuff until you've kind of created an opening for a finisher sort of thing. Um and what I what I really like about this system, there are a number of things that I am I'm really enjoying about Sekiro and that I I figured that I would enjoy having watched some stuff about it, but that it's it's nice to play it and for myself and and experience it one of the big things that that um from software um i think one of the things that some people don't like as much about sekiro is that there is not nearly as much um kind of play whatever character you want to play element in sekiro in in dark souls one of the things is that there's a number of different Types of equipment that you can use and the equipment that you're using basically defines like what animations that your character uses in combat um, and, and things like that. So a lot of play style is defined by the specific equipment that you as the player choose to use as your character and then also you can um, upgrade your character's uh, raw attributes essentially, right? More strength for more damage, or more vitality for more health, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and so often there's a sort of interplay in the, the Dark Souls games of like you know okay so I'm gonna you know upgrade my strength to twenty so that I can use the great store great sword without any penalties, and then I'm gonna you know get some titanite so I can upgrade the great sword, and then kind of go back and forth and you know, the sort of advancement through the game that is, um, you know, the, you kind of get to choose how you want to play through the game. And part of the idea being that there's very different sort of styles of play that come out of different combinations of things, right? So you could, uh, you know, be a, a a giga chad and use like a great big, you know, like, uh, Havel's uh club that's made from a dragon tooth and just smack enemies or you could be a filthy dex user and get uh you know like the balder side sword and just dodge all the time and you know be a lot less cool anyway um but the idea being and then there's also like you know magic and so there's there's spells and miracles and it's basically uh you know arcane magic versus clerical magic and then there's a number of different um the the idea being that there's lots of different ways to approach the different challenges in the game and the game is fairly open about how you want to approach it and even in fact there's a a dude on YouTube um I think Zero Lenny is the name of his channel um that what he has done is played through at least all 3 of the original dark, of the the core dark souls games um with the broken straight sword, which is basically a, a sword hilt with maybe like six inches of blade, that is a, a weapon that you get um, often in the the tutorial section of the game. That's basically like, hey, this is you know like an absolute trash thing that you can't really hit anything with um, very well. But if you you know if it's it's better than nothing sort of thing, um, and he basically will play through the whole of a very difficult game with a essentially absolutely terrible weapon and and demonstrate that, you know, with some knowledge about how the game works and and, you know, skill, player skill, that you can actually do that, right? That you don't have to play the game sort of as intended, if that makes sense. That you can totally you know, it's possible to beat Dark Souls with the broken straight sword or to do like the Happy Hob and do no hit runs trying to play through the entire game without getting hit once um or play through a number of games you, you can uh, happy hob does no hit runs where he plays through like all three dark souls games or like sekiro and all three dark souls and bloodborne and, and all of the games without ever getting hit once which is you know kind of unbelievable in some ways, but also is I think a real testament to the way that, you know, the for instance, the the difficulty of the Dark Souls series is definitely not um random, right? That it's not just like, you know, oh you rolled a, a Nat 1 on your D20 and so you die, sort of thing. That it's it's deliberate, right? And and as a result, that if you, you know, pay very close attention to the way things work in the game you can sort of, you know, manipulate the the mechanisms that are in the game in order to succeed even in ways that weren't necessarily kind of how the the designers might have expected you to beat the game, um which is I think a, a cool concept. Anyway, Sekiro is it has some of that, but it definitely has um less of that. So there's not multiple weapons. The the only weapon is um, I can't remember the name of the the particular sword that um, your character uses, uh, which is the the, the sword that um, at the beginning of the game you don't have it, and then basically about you know halfway or a third of the way through the sort of tutorial section of the game you um, get your sword back and are able to start fighting with it. Um, and there's some other stuff, so part of the idea of the game is that um, your character has a prosthetic arm, his left arm is um, he he loses basically his left arm at about the elbow um, at essentially the end of the tutorial section and then um, gets this prosthetic that has this kind of mechanical element to it so he can add special tools to the prosthetic Um, so there's some Flexibility there in the sense of, like, you have, you know, you can um, fire shuriken out of the prosthetic or you can, you know, like, have a special spear that stabs out or you can have the axe that chops through uh, shields or you can have the flamethrower sort of thing. Um, but really, a lot of that is less of, like, giving you lots of different options and more Of kind of that's how a lot of the sort of progress through the game is gated a little bit that um you know shielded enemies for instance are really tough to deal with without the axe that chops through shields and so the idea is that you know when it's time in the game you can go to the place that you get the axe to chop through shields and that sort of unlocks more of the game for you because now you can deal with a, a particular type of enemy almost um so it's a little bit less of the kind of um, freeform progress that you get with like Dark Souls One, um, and you only have the one weapon. And I think there's I think they added a DLC with a couple of like cosmetic costumes, but you can't like choose different types of armor for different stats and stuff. Um, and there's more kind of like platforming style stuff, like you have to. You know jump between different spots and you have a essentially a grappling hook that you can use to uh, do these kind of batman style grapple up to up out of danger or between different spots on the map and things like that Um, which is really cool i think but it's definitely a little different than um, i think in particular a number of the people who basically just wanted more dark souls um after Dark Souls three, and then Sekiro came out, and they were like, "Ah, this is not really like what I was hoping for," um, because it is fairly different. There's there's some fairly significant differences, but in particular, the the combat difference I think is one of the big things because posture regenerates for both you and for enemies, and posture damage is not vitality damage. Now you can do vitality damage without. Totally breaking down an enemy's posture, um, and there's some enemies where that's useful because uh, there's a, a thing the game actually at one point tells you, hey, uh, you know, you or enemies when they're at lower vitality out of their maximum, their posture will regenerate slower, and so if an enemy is really tough to break their posture, you might try to, you know, do a little bit of damage to their health first so that their posture will regenerate slower, so that you can break their posture so that you can finish them off with the death blow, sort of thing. Um but the the point that I'm really getting at is one of the things that I think is really, really cool about the game is the way in which um this posture regeneration system really ends up, in my opinion, sort of prioritizing a style of play that is fairly kind of um, push-your-luck-ish, almost. There's a... I have been feeling like there's a number of sequences where, you know, part of the idea is if you just throw a couple of wild strikes around and you're, you know, like facing three enemies and you hit each of them once and they take a little bit of posture damage and you're not, like, focusing on any of them, you're not going to get through their posture. Um, so there's a deliberation there, but there's also a way in which, you know, if you get hit and have to, you know, escape the kind of action and get a chance to catch your breath, your enemies will catch their breath too, basically. Um, and that creates a really cool sense of, like, you know, you at least I, when playing, want to kind of get in there and sort of, you know, trade with the enemy until I can you know, do the death blow to finish him because that's how you actually defeat enemies, mostly Um, and so there's a great I think in Dark Souls um, it's not a flaw by any means, but it is one of the kind of classic things, kind of like the idea with the, the, you know, stab in their ankles things, the idea of sort of a, a a very deliberate way of defeating difficult enemies um, that does not really depend on a lot of that kind of, you know, aggressive like get in there and fight stuff right, that they and, and that um, there is a sense in which that's sort of the point of Dark Souls sometimes, I think one of the big things that a lot of the from software games sort of are getting at is basically the value of kind of patience and deliberate play that very often you know if you you know the first time you fight a boss you might not know much of anything about what they do but you know after you've died to a boss a couple of times you've probably seen a number of their animations in their move set a number of their kind of things that they do and are kind of formulating a plan to deal with the boss and the reason that you die often in Dark Souls is basically that, you know, you get greedy and say, oh, I could, you know, get two hits in here, even though, you know, I thought I only had time for one, but I'm going to go for two this time, and, you know, the second hit just takes too long, and the boss is able to turn and smack you and, and punish you for greed, basically. Um, and the, the sort of point of that being that that, you know... In my opinion, actually, um, none of the Souls games, in my opinion, are particularly hard if you are willing to pay attention and be very deliberate about your play. I think that's the big thing. There are some places where that's not quite enough, especially um, some of the games, well, most of the games will have you know, at least one or two bosses that are, um, you know, not like you know big lumbering monsters, but are like a lot faster. In particular, is one of the things. Um, I think uh, like Orphan of of Koss in um, Bloodborne, I think of, which I think is a DLC boss, maybe, but I don't remember for certain. Um, but the part of the point being that uh, that particular boss um is is really fast and really aggressive and doesn't give you a lot of time to kind of play patiently and stuff and that is actually part of the the sort of difficulty is that trying to you know pay play patient and deliberate when the boss is not giving you very much room for patient and deliberate um is is part of the the difficulty of the game right is is kind of keeping your cool even when shit's going down um and and you know paying close attention to the animations and the movements and and the way in particular that it is more and more difficult to play deliberate play deliberately and pay close attention as a fight goes on right that you know uh you know 90 seconds of paying close attention and being really deliberate is not nearly as hard as you know like 200 seconds or 500 seconds of that kind of of close attention and deliberate play and all of that sort of stuff and that that's i think a big a big part of the point right is that you you sort of you know basically that in my opinion and it's part of why i don't know that directly adapting dark souls to something that is not a video game particularly the idea of adapting dark souls to an rpg i think I think there are a number of things that you can take from Dark Souls to learn how to make um, better RPG sessions, but I also think there are some things that are like, that's not really, like, fun, especially, I think, the sort of decision-making tree that, in my opinion, right, like, the way you win Dark Souls often is just, you know, the game asks you, hey, do you want to, you know, be greedy right now, and you say, no, I'm just going to be patient, and... You know, if you can do that over and over and over again, you can win, often. Not always... It, that's not always just enough, but for most of the bosses, right, if you just, you know, play patiently and play deliberately and, you know, pay close attention to what's going on, that's basically how you you win consistently. Um, and there's some other stuff, you know, especially as you get to, you know, like, if you want to play, like, New Game Plus or something, you kind of need to pay attention to... Your equipment and what upgrades you're getting and maxing out um, those and things like that but the, the point being that in my opinion the sort of decision making tree of Dark Souls combat is actually not particularly interesting and that the reason that Dark Souls combat is fun is not because the decisions are difficult but because executing those decisions has a, a level of kind of not even difficulty, but a sort of, um, the sort of, for lack of a better term, kind of, you know, the, the angel and the devil on your shoulders type thing, right? That your, your conscience is saying, just, you know, just be patient. And the, you know, the devil on your shoulder is saying, no, you can get, you can get another one in here. Boss is so low. You can totally get one more hit in right here. And that's, you know, that's the, the the difficulty of dark souls in in a lot of ways certainly um uh, in in a number of situations that that's i think really at the core of what the difficulty comes down to not always there are definitely sequences where you know there'll be like enemies behind blind corners that just ambush you and you know there is a measure of well if you just you know walk around with your shield up all the time you'd be able to deal with those better certainly but i Anyway, um, but basically what I am suggesting is that I think what is really, really cool about Sekiro is this kind of push your luck, stay in the fight where, you know, in order to defeat enemies, you kind of have to stay in the fight. And part of the point being that, you know, similar to the idea about, you know, paying attention and sticking with the plan is more difficult as time goes on you know, if you're in a, a, a fight in Sekiro and you basically have to get, you know, not quite perfect perfect, but really good parries and strikes over and over and over again for a, you know, extended pattern, that's a lot more difficult than having to do that just, you know, once or twice. Um, but that that's where I think the game really shines is that, you know, you there are very few enemies, at least from what I've seen playing it myself and and watching, um, a, a chunk of a let's play. I think there are very few enemies that you can't just beat with really good technical play. Even the whole thing about um, needing certain weapon upgrades to kind of progress through different parts of the game, I think is not entirely true. That if you are willing to, you know, invest the kind of time and energy that it takes. To get really, really good at the game, you could totally beat Sekiro without any upgrades. Well, maybe not without any upgrades, but certainly without a lot of the things that make the game easier if you just, you know, that you just parry, right? Just just deflect the blows with good timing, right? Just, you know, really, really focus on getting really good at the fundamentals, and you can take on almost anything, which is, I think, really cool, Um because it really emphasizes that kind of you know really really strong awareness of the sort of core fundamentals of how the game works as well as um, developing this kind of it reminds me a little bit of the way that i feel playing the batman arkham games and that sort of sense of you know it not as much in the Batman Arkham games, although definitely in the Invisible Predator sections um, there's a sort of sense that, you know, if you mess up you're in serious trouble, right? You're on a, a pretty, you know narrow path to victory but that if you can kind of stay on the path you will end up, you know, feeling like an absolute badass who could take on anything and come out totally unscathed because you have that you know, control of the fundamentals. Um, I think that's really cool, and especially that sort of sense of, you know, not just being able to, you know, like wade into a crowd of enemies or go, you know, toe-to-toe with a boss or whatever, but specifically that you sort of need to sometimes, right? That especially with the bosses in Sekiro, um, that you, you basically have to, you know, be willing to to stand there and trade and, and trust your control, of your you know character and your ability at sword play essentially to be able to parry the enemy's blows and get in strikes when you can and take down their posture because if you don't keep up the pressure their posture is just going to come back um and i think that's really really cool in a lot of ways um so yeah I don't entirely know how you do that in RPGs. I guess I got away from that a little bit, but maybe I'll do another episode um, in a couple days or something and sort of talk about how to put that into your role-playing games. All right, I lied. I'm actually going to talk about it in this episode because I feel like it. Um, Just more about kind of the way that I think you can bring some of that stuff that I like from the Sekiro combat into RPGs. Um, so the the obvious one that comes to mind has to do with, um, I've been thinking a lot about kind of uh, the fate and aspects element, the idea of having, you know, you sort of build up a whole number of create an aspect aspects where the idea is that the aspects are easier to... easier to create aspects than to actually do regular attacks. Um, and so you, you know, spend some time basically, you know, knocking the target off balance and things like that before you actually go in for the, the kill, essentially. A little bit like what I was talking about with um, some of the stuff about The Last Duel, and that, you know, you, you sort of build up your... Um, preparation for a big strike sort of thing, which I think is a cool um, idea. And I think Fate is, is built in some ways to, to do that quite well. That um, you, you definitely can do that well with Fate. I think there's some others. I was thinking about um, Cypher System, I think, has some of that, especially um, because of the way that your... Resources for essentially altering roles are basically also your hit points, right? Your your attribute points um, in Cipher System are both used to alter roles as well as to um, absorb damage, essentially. And that as a result, um, there is that sense of like, okay, well, I you know I need to put my resources into taking down this bad, big, tough enemy quickly so that I don't keep taking damage from the big, tough enemy because if I keep taking damage, I'm not going to have the resources to actually beat him. I think that's a, a cool thing, right? That sense of like, okay, so I need to need to make it happen quickly before I get kind of drained of my resources too much so that I can't actually um, do the... the the thing that I was hoping to, the thing that I was planning on, um, you know, take down the, the enemy. Um, so I think that's a, a cool thing. Certainly, I like that. Um, I actually think that the the Burning Wheel games sort of do this thing kind of well. Um, not not quite in the same way, but that especially one of the things that a number of them do, certainly Burning Wheel itself does in the uh, fight Um, and then Mouse Guard and Torchbearer both do this for the sort of extended challenges, um, are kind of built on this principle that the, either the individual in combat or the, the team or however it is, the side basically of each side of the contest will input a series of actions, um, basically, and and then have to go through each action um, until you get to the end of the series and you can kind of, you know, reformulate the the new plan. And in most of those games, I think it's three actions for uh, a series, essentially, that you, you know, in in Torchbearer and Mouse Guard, you put in, you know, like, here's the three actions that the team is going to do over the course of this round of the the combat or whatever they call it. I don't remember the, the terminology that they use. Um, but part of the idea of that is it means one of the ways in which that kind of system works is that uh, often the different actions will have um, fairly clear kind of counters, if that makes sense. That, you know, this type of action is pretty much totally countered by this type of action, but is, you know, really effective against this other type of action, right? A sort of rock, paper, scissors kind of thing almost, right? The idea of, you know, scissors is defeated by rock but beats paper, paper beats uh, rock but is defeated by scissors, that sort of thing. Um, and as with, you know, rock, paper, scissors, the idea being that the the most dangerous position for any given side to be in is the position in which their actions are predictable, right? That, you know, even a, a very, you know, stat powerful character or enemy or whoever else can be overcome if their particular actions that they're going to take in one of these conflicts, um, if you can predict what those actions are, you can choose the actions for your side that will pretty solidly counter those actions, and the, the point being that, you know, even if they have, you know, a, a high value and so are going to roll a lot of D6s and get a lot of successes at what they're trying to do, if you can pick the right actions, you can basically negate the the chance of them being particularly successful based on picking the right actions rather than just based on them having good um, attributes or, or skills or whatever. Um, and the, the point being there that, you know, similar to, it's a little bit different, um, but the idea being that, you know, being in a position where you kind of have to behave in a particular way is what's dangerous. Um, and especially, I think that gets into in fighting, when your side has, you know, taken some hits, has been roughed up a little bit, that, um, you know, you, you kind of have to weigh the decision-making of do we retreat now and try to get away when that's what the enemy expects us to do um, or do we stay in the fight and try to take advantage of the fact that they expect us to retreat um, and, you know, that we can, you know, sort of potentially counter their um, attempt to take advantage of us pulling back with some well-timed sort of counter-strikes almost and that that will you know, be very effective, right? And that, that, I think, gets into a... It's a little bit different. It's not quite... Th- there is an element of push-your-luck there, though, of the sense of, you know, well, if we have guessed right, then we might, you know, do really well. But if we guess poorly, we might be in serious trouble, right? If we are planning to, you know, basically uh, do sort of like a, like a feint to take down the 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 bad guys that are trying to you know to they think we're retreating so they we're gonna let them overextend themselves and then smack them that you know if we time it wrong and they don't overextend themselves then we're about to get savage right in that sense of you know push your luck okay so can we can we stand to have that chance right that's a a real consideration right is you know do we need to you know, behave in the way that is safe, even if it's predictable, because, you know, we sort of all know what's going to happen in that situation. Or are we going to, you know, take the chance on doing something unexpected that might be really successful or might not, depending on how the the enemy is behaving. So, anyway, um, what's some others that I was thinking of? There's a little bit of that in... Um, the two D twenty games with the way that momentum works, because one of the things in a lot of those games you um, lose momentum from the pool on scene transitions. So there's a sense of you know if you wanna you wanna use it before you lose it, sort of thing. Um, it, it, the different games work a little differently, but I remember in Conan you lose one momentum from the pool, and the pool can have a maximum of six. Um, So you go from 6 to 5 or 5 to 4, you know, how that works um, when you transition scenes. And so you kind of want to, you know, do everything that's relevant to the scene that you might use momentum for and then move on to um, the next scene instead of being like, okay, well, you know, the, the point being that the sort of economics of play are pushing you to use the resources before they just disappear because of the, Scene transition. There's some other. What else was I thinking about? I can't remember all of the other ones I was thinking about. It seems like um, attacks of opportunity do a little bit of that in a lot of games. That you know, in games where, for instance, there isn't a way to negate an attack of opportunity, right? That there's no five foot step or something like that there is an element of you know if you if you get into melee combat and you take a big hit you might be in a position certainly i i have had characters in the position before where you know only have enough hit points for one maybe two hits so you know run and try to avoid the attack of opportunity or ...stay fighting because the enemy doesn't get the attack of opportunity... ...and hope that you can take them down before they take you down sort of thing. Um, that I think that's... ...there's something in there that is similar, right? The The sense of, you know... ...if you're in a situation where your character is not going to take very many hits... right, ...cannot really tank very many more hits... ...and so needs to, you know, either take down the enemy or get away really quickly... You know, if your opponent can make an attack of opportunity in addition to, like, one attack per round, that it may be pretty significant of, you know, two attacks versus one attack, depending on how the timing works out, that you can uh, sort of... Might be beneficial to stand and fight, right? You might have better odds if you stand and fight versus running away. Um, And I think that's an interesting thing um so yeah you know where else was I thinking about that I don't remember there there was one or two other things were one or two other things that I was thinking about um, in terms of games that had some of that element or, or ways to bring it into oh 13th Age that was another I was thinking of 13th Age has a a thing called the Escalation Die, if I remember correctly. And it's basically the the number of rounds that the combat has gone on for. Um, and then there's some cool bits and pieces that essentially relate to the Escalation Die, that basically, you know, as the fight goes on, you know, there are monsters that will unlock new uh, attacks. There are certain things like where, for instance you might be able to, you know, like add the escalation die rating to the damage of a particular attack. And so the idea being that, you know, if you use it early, you don't get as much bonus damage as if you use it later. Um, And maybe it's the sort of thing that you can only do once per fight, right? Kind of like a, you know, an encounter power in 4E that um, there's a lot of 4E's influence in 13th Age. And that therefore you know, you sort of say, okay, well, you know, I could use it early and have what is, you know, probably more effective than just a normal turn, but if I save it for later, I might be able to get even more out of it, sort of thing, so, you know, it's an interesting concept there, I think there's some cool stuff there, so, anyway, that's some, some kind of interesting ideas that, uh, might be relevant in terms of thinking about ways to create that sense of kind of, you know, pushing your luck, get in and, and trade with the enemy. And that's sort of the way that you, uh, defeat enemies, right? The the sort of sense that you can't just kind of dance around and avoid things. You kind of have to, you know, in Sekiro terms, you know, getting close and, um, slash and parry in order to break through their posture and take them down because you won't get anywhere with your, your other actions. So anyway, a couple of ideas there. All right. It is now tomorrow, which is not the right way to say that. But what I mean is that I recorded, um, everything up to this point yesterday for me. Um, I have not re-listened to any of it. Um, it's one of those things that I suspect there's some good stuff in there. I do kind of feel like, um, especially in the the section where I was talking about kind of ways to bring into RPGs some of the, the stuff that I like from combat in um, Sekiro that I got uh, fairly off target um, in terms of talking about a number of things that do have some relation to. The sort of stuff that I was talking about with Sekiro, but are not necessarily kind of, you know, directly what I was talking about, which is a, a classic thing that I do. Um, and that I suspect many people do when they talk about this sort of stuff is the the sort of expansion into related things, um, some of which are uh, useful and some of which are not probably uh, but anyway, so I hope you enjoy this episode. I will probably re-listen to it uh, later, but I don't feel like doing that right now before releasing it. So I'm just gonna do it as is and hope that it's all right. Um, I, I certainly enjoyed talking about this sort of stuff, um, so it was nice to to chat about it. Um, and I guess I will talk to you guys soon um i've got a couple of things that i am working on um i'm still doing the the journal regularly um as well as i've been um working on a couple of other um episodes a little more like this kind of a a sort of specific thing to talk about um so i'll sort of go through all of that i guess um and we'll you know get into that sort of stuff and um chat about all of that so anyway i hope everyone is uh doing well staying safe staying healthy and having lots of fun gaming um yeah i i've been arlen walker i've been live from home's wasteland and i will see you next time take care everybody